Podcast listeners, we hope you've been to the website this week. Go there now. The new and improved letsrun.com is here after months of work. Our programmer has been working for months and months on this. We've unveiled it to the masses. The forum is amazing now. We got way better moderation, much quicker. You can now sort out all the non-running crap if you don't want to read that. View the running only post. You can block the problem users that are bothering you. We have upvotes and downvotes so you can see what the community really thinks about some of these controversial posts. It's also a cleaner look. So go to letsrun.com slash forum today. You'll really like it if you haven't been there in a while. We've really worked hard on providing you a better forum experience and hope you'll check it out today. And speaking of doing your best, you can't do your best unless you're getting the proper electrolytes. Get electrolytes with no junk, no sugar. Drink LMNT. Check it out. Free sample pack will be sent your way. Six different flavors. Go to drinklmnt.com slash let's run. Link in the show notes. And they keep innovating, people. I got a new flavor here sent to me. Mint chocolate. They have like party flavors, but they also, you know, got your traditional flavors. Orange salt, raspberry salt. Watermelon was a new one that came out this year. Very good. I love this stuff. I will refund your five dipping if you don't like it. Link in the show notes. Here's the pod. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. We had an insane weekend of action in Boston. We saw American records, Canadian records, a European record in the 5,000 meters, a collegiate record in the men's 3,000 meters. In Chicago, Cooper and Cole Hawker put on a show but fell just short in their American record attempt. But in Louisville on Saturday, Shane Strike, unheralded Shane Strike, did break the American record in the 1,000 meters. We'll talk about that. Union Athletics Club got in on the action on Friday night. They got a world best in the women's DMR. Plus, Justin Gatlin retired. Ben Rosario is a genius. And we could have a whole bunch of world records in Leven, France, by the time you listen to this. This is Jonathan Gold. I am joined by my co-hosts and the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. Guys, you recovered from the Super Bowl and all that track that we had over the weekend. John, speaking of the Super Bowl, I just want to start first with an apology. The Let's Run.com Pro Coaches Tour talked to Ben Rosario, I believe last Thursday. He told me to get it up. I said, oh, I'll put it up on the weekend. I actually put it up Monday. Well, at the end of that podcast, Ben Rosario said, yeah, I guess he's got a little bit of a betting habit. And you must have known about this. And you asked him for some betting tips on the Super Bowl. He predicted the Rams winning by three. And then he just predicted a golf bet, 24 to one. that paid off as well. Well, you're downplaying this. He nailed, well, it wasn't the exact, he didn't give the exact point totals, but he said Rams win, but Bengals cover, which is a pretty narrow margin. And he nailed that exactly. And then he picked a golfer to win a tournament. That doesn't usually happen. You cut like Scotty Scheffler, the waste management open in Phoenix. 
He's like, yeah, I put a lot of money on Scotty Scheffler at 24 to 1. Anything 24 to 1 actually coming through and happening is pretty uncommon, Weldon. I'd say the chances are about 1 in 24. So that's a very nice investment. We robbed some of the Let's Run public of, of this money. If they listen to Ben's gambling tips, I mean, maybe we have a weekly segment. I listen to the Bill Simmons podcast. He makes his picks for the weekend in football every Friday. Many of them are wrong. He's lost people money if they're following the picks. Ben Rosario, he comes on, he gives two picks. He makes people a boatload of money if they're listening. This needs to be a weekly segment on the Let's Run podcast. Gambling tips with Ben Rosario. I agree. Can someone text him to see how much, get a screenshot of his winnings to see if he actually, you know, bet on his own picks? Someone text him right now and see what we got. But we apologize for costing you guys and gals money. But... Those of you that are on supporting club members, we save you money all the time. Get 20% off your shoes by joining Supporters Club. Don't do what my wife did. Yesterday's a pair of shoes. I'll admit the brand. Came into the door, delivered Hocus. My wife bought Hocus. She's not even a runner. She loves Hocus. And I said, honey, did you use the Let's Run.com discount? No. She just cost us 20%. Let's run.com slash subscribe to save 20% on your shoes. Get the bonus podcast, access to all of our articles, and more. But I've recovered from the Super Bowl. Very upset Cincinnati didn't win. I'm always for the underdog teams. These asshole owners that move their team should not be rewarded with the Super Bowl. But I have not recovered from this figure skating. I've been watching it, thinking about its impact on Shelby Houlihan and track and field world. What do you guys want to talk about? This doped up Russian skater. People think I'm defending her. I kind of have been, but not really. Track and feel. Where should we go? I want to talk about the records. We saw a bunch of them over the weekend. And I see someone in our let's run.com notes Google Doc has posed the question, which was the most impressive? I think that's a good place to start. Which of these records we saw? Yard and a Goose, Gabrielle Debut Stafford, Elise Cranny, Grant Fisher, Mohamed, Mark Scott, Shane Strike, Union Athletics Club. Which of those do you feel was the most impressive record of the weekend? John, you left out the high school girls 800 meter record, which was actually crushed. I think they're, the winner was now, see, notice I don't know her name, is now number two in the world. Is that correct? Uh, there was a faster time on Monday, but yeah, she was way up there. The winner, Roisin Willis, the previous record was 201.78 and she ran two flat 0.06. So she totally obliterated it, almost broke two. She's one of the best in the country, or as you said, in the world right now, actually, but said she doesn't planning on running USA indoors and Sophia Guerrerin who was only a junior, also ran well under the record, and she was too flat. So that was a really impressive weekend. But that wasn't, that wasn't my most impressive record. I guess I'll, I'll ask it to you guys first. But which did you have a performance? What do you think was the best one of the weekend, most impressive record? I mean, I don't know if it's the most impressive, John, but the record everyone's talking about is Grant Fisher's 12.53. It's not even close. The emphasis on Let's Run.com's American distance runners. So Gabriel with Stafford's record is not going to get the credit it deserves. And Elise Cranny got beat in that race, so I can't give her all the credit. I mean, is there really any debate? 
Chain Strikes an amazing story, but what I'm gonna go to some collegiate 3K record. And the whole interesting thing is also that we thought we'd be just talking about the American Mile record this podcast, right? Didn't happen. Yeah, that was the one I thought was most likely to fall. I guess I did predict Grant Fisher to break the American record. It's funny. I said he would run between 13 flat and 13.01.26, which was Galen Rupp's old American record. And then I talked talked to Grant after the race, and he said, yeah, I thought I was going to run 13 flat or 13.01. So do I get credit for that? That's what the athlete himself thought he was going to run. He just happened to run a lot faster than that. I would say it's Grant Fisher, too. He was 0.13 away from Bernard Lagarde's overall American record from outdoors in 2011. He missed Kennedy Sabakele's world record by just over four seconds. And he totally destroyed the Olympic silver medalist in this event, Mohamed. So, yeah, I think it was Grant Fisher. All these other runs, Yard Nagusas was great. That legend, that collegiate record by Alistair Cragg was legendary. We'll give it some love later, but I'm going Fisher. 12.53, that's that's an elite performance, and he's only 24 years old. Yeah, it has to be. The way he won, closing it down, he was just running 29s for fun at the end. Closed in 3.57 for his final 1,600. I'm going with Fisher. Yeah, I agree with you guys. There was no real debate as to which one was most impressive. It's Grant Fisher's 12.53. That's why I've already had a poster made and put it up behind me on the wall. And, you know, another way to think about this, too, is like where would it have ranked on the on the outtime, outdoor list last year? And Fisher's mark would be seventh in the world, whereas DeBruce Stafford would have been 12th. So 12 women ran faster than 1431, only seven ran faster than 1253. I guess actually if you're using that criteria, then there is debate because, well, I guess – I was going to say Rosen Willis, but that's just indoors. Second in the world, third in the world. I mean, Rosen Willis is a great story. It's really cool, as is Shane Strike. But what's my rule about high school women? Do not hype them until they're 18 and PRing. She's 17. But I think that's cool. The Shane Strike story, though, is so amazing to me. Never run a 1,000. I mean, he's quietly sort of stuck with the sport. Just missed the final right last year in the trials. And then now has the American record. But... To see to have Fisher win the race was exciting, and run that fast was cool. So, you know, and I think people were stunned by it. But you know, I devoted a whole week that was, or most of it, to debating: should we be that stunned? Is it really that stunning? And I meant to. I actually yesterday went back and listened to the podcast. What I said on our Thursday fifteen, the bonus podcast we recorded on Thursday, so it'd be out before these races. Basically, what I said about Fisher was was dead on. You know, I said, look, the Bowman Track Club, the best way to do it is to peg this pace. Like, if you want to break 13, put it at 13.05 pace and then slam it down from there. And I don't know what they were. John, what pace were they on at 3K? Slower and slower than what he ended up running, for sure. He definitely, like, in both races, they closed pretty hard. So if his last 3K was, his last... 2k was 459 so can't do all the math on that but my guess is they were probably a little above 13 flat pace at 3k yes they were 754 at 3k which is crawfish is 
3K split was 753.76. That's that's 1309 pace for 5K. So you picked it up significantly over the final two kilometers. I know you guys don't like me playing clips, but it's, it's exactly what I said. The only thing I, where I was off was I said he'd run 1259. He ran 1253. But we just got to recalibrate with the shoes. I don't want people to say, oh, I'm taking away from him. I'm not taking away. This guy's one of the greatest talents in U.S. history. Two-time. Only two Americans have won the Foot Locker High School Cross Country Championships twice on the men's side. And that's Jathan Ritzenheim and Grant Fisher. And unlike Ritz, he was fast <laughs> in the shorter stuff. He broke four in the mile. He's got the speed that you want to see. He wins an NCAA title as a sophomore at Stanford. And yeah, his junior and senior years weren't amazing, but like his senior year, he was getting second in everything. Wasn't he second in cross country, second in the five, second in the 10? I mean, he didn't run the 10, but it seems like he was just getting runner up. So pretty damn good. Plus, he's at Stanford. That's like Weldon being at Yale. The academic stress, I think, is going to hurt your performances. So, you know, gets fifth in the Olympics last year. I don't think we gave him enough credit for that. He's like three seconds away from the win. Like, that's pretty sick. It's pretty amazing. And, you know, I don't know. I guess it was, it's easy. Hindsight's always 2020 to see this coming. But 1253, you know, how much of the shoe's worth? I'm, I've heard a coach tell me four. I never thought it's four. I've always said two to three in my head think two to three seconds per mile. If it's three seconds per mile, it's nine seconds for 5,000. And that would be to you take this 1253 to 1302. Galen Rupp ran, ran 1301. Maybe Fisher's a little bit better than Galen Rupp at the shorter stuff. So that's why I think it's a little bit less than three seconds per mile. I've had, you know, Jeff Burns has told me, the University of Michigan, like, hey, it might not be consistent for an event, so it would not be the same necessarily. You know, 5K might not be 3.1 times the impact it has at a mile. But I, I think that that's right. I don't think that the runners are suddenly way better than they were before. I, to be honest, I mean, David Epstein has uh, one of those TED Talks about it where he basically shows that St. Bolt's not really that much faster than Jesse Owens, just technology's changed. And I think that's the case now. This guy is a... He's, you know, a, a Solinsky, he's a Tegan Camp, he's a Rupp, he's a Bob Kennedy, you know. That's another way to think about it. Bob Kennedy ran 12.58 when, what's, what's Gebert Celeste's world record? 12.39, so he's 19 seconds off the world record. Well, how far is Fisher off the world record? 12.53 and 12.35, is that right? So he's 18 seconds off? It's basically the same. So what you're seeing is history's repeating itself, we just have different numbers for it. Yeah, the interesting thing you brought up there, Robert, is he was at Stanford, and I remember him saying his junior year didn't really go great. You know, he was still third in the NCAA 5K, but a lot of people, including myself, thought after he won that 5K outdoors in 2017, he was just going to own the NCAA moving forward. And he was taking some tough classes, and he puts, you know, he's a dedicated student. He puts a lot of effort into that as well. And I think. That tended that overwhelmed him a little bit as a junior. And I talked to him after the race on Saturday, and he said, Yeah, he was taking classes at Stanford again. He's, you know, there was a program he had started before he left Stanford, and he went, wanted to go back and finish it. And I thought, Oh, this is like weird. Like, you're a pro athlete now. He had talked about how much of a stressor it was in 2017, 2018, but 
He also said he's not going to be taking classes in the spring and summer. I think this is more of a thing he'd done in the fall. And clearly it didn't affect him too much if he's able to come out around 12.53 in his first race of the season. But I did find that interesting. He's, he's just a very driven individual, I think. And he takes you know academics seriously. But I don't think it's going to be affecting him in it, the way it was in 17-18, given he's not taking classes in the spring or summer. It's a great run. The, the big picture for me is like, okay, we have our new Galen Rupp, essentially, on the men's side. Fifth of the Olympics. This guy can contend for medals. I mean, I guess he got beat by Woody Kincaid last year, but he runs 12.53. He beats a Mohamed, who's the Olympic silver medalist. I don't think we should get too carried away with the times. I mean, Emmanuel Bohr was there until, what, a lap to go, pretty much, John? Two laps to go? Yeah, I think about two laps to go. So, great run by him. Just missed 13. But I think that's that shows something about the times. Is and Emmanuel afterwards said he's going to run twelve fifty this year. So the under twelve fifty. Well, then he was very firm about that, which I loved. I love the confidence. I just people need to raise their sights. Twelve fifty three isn't what it once was. This was a great run. I'm amazed at how fast everybody closed. We get to the women's race as well. Same thing, but when the B heat is one in thirteen oh five. I think we shouldn't get too carried away with the times. We're starting to see now indoor track running, especially I think at some of the longer distances, it's you can run j- pretty much just as fast as you can outdoors, maybe faster because there's no wind. I think faster because you optimize everything. They're, this is a top training group with top training partners locking in in one of the best places to train in the world, Flagstaff. They focus solely on this race and running fast. They have the super shoes. They have a track. They have good pacemaking. There's really no other variables that I can think of that they can optimize. And so you're going to get the fastest possible times. That's 12.53 and for Stafford, 14.31. Is there anything I'm missing? Is there any way you can set up an attempt better than what they've done? Probably not. I mean, it was very well done. The question I have for you, John, is what was it like to be in the building? When you saw the B Heat one in thirteen oh five, were you thinking, "Oh my God!" First of all, did you know there was an A and a B Heat, or did you maybe think there was? Sometimes they do two even heats. Like if you if you see thirteen oh five in the B Heat, you must be thinking, "Wow, what is this A Heat going to happen in?" I I've been talking to Scott Simmons, uh, kind of, and some of the other coaches, so I kind of knew that there was going to be two heats, and some of the people were looking at the race like not everyone realized that was the b heat when it was run first because at bu the fast heat is always the first heat that's run so people saw woody kincaid who again is the reigning u.s champion in the 10,000 meters a 1258 guy lopez lemong who's a 1258 guy sean mcgordy and evan jager who are 130 guys you look at that field you think oh of course this must be the a heat they're trying to run you know 130 they ended up running 1305 which Woody Kincaid, he closed in 26, ran 13.05, which at the time was the number two time ever by an American indoors. So you see that and you think, oh, that must be the fast heat. But I was like, no, 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 this isn't the fast heat because Mohamed's not in there. Grant Fisher's not in there. Emmanuel Bohr's not in there. Connor Mance wasn't in there. So I was like, no, there's going to be a fast one, which was kind of crazy. And then people did realize that. The, and the PA announcer in the building did a good job of hyping things up and saying they were on American record pace. Like, Unfortunately, 
there were no fans allowed. Now, there's still a lot of competing athletes. There were some coaches. There was some media. So there was a good atmosphere, but it wasn't as full as it had been earlier in the day in the midst of the college meet. But they still made a lot of noise. It was a fitting atmosphere for the record. And people definitely knew like he was going to do it. And then they kind of see at the bell, like, you know, 12, 20, Two or twelve twenty one on the tr- on the clock, and people are like, oh my god, they're gonna, he's going to run way way under thirteen minutes. So it was a good atmosphere for a record. Wait a second, John. You're telling me the like handful of people who wanted to come in and like just observe this, maybe even buy a ticket, were not allowed because of COVID. The BU policy is, I believe, they are allowed spectators. Maybe within the BU community, like if you're a BU student or professor, you may have been able to go, but like average fans couldn't go, which was a bummer because I had multiple friends were talking to me and they're like, hey, Johnny, is there any way we can get in the building for this? Like, we'd like to come watch. And I told them the BU policy is they're not allowing spectators. Even if you're fully vaxxed, even if you're wearing masks, they weren't allowed. And even though the building was still had a lot of people in it between the teams and coaches and that sort of thing did you apply for like a media pass or you just walk into this type of thing no you if i didn't apply for a media pass i don't think it would have been let in well then so yes i had to apply for a media pass normally at bu you can just show up and no problem but for this one i needed to apply ahead of time that's the little secret of a lot of these track events i swear half the people could if you just say your media you probably could walk down on the probably start the race if you wanted to well, the other the other thing about BU, so here are a couple things. One, normally at this meet, like after about 9 p.m. or whatever, they'll just stop checking tickets and you can walk in for free because most of the meet's over. And that's when this big event would have been. So that wouldn't have been an issue normally. And the other thing I was talking to my friend, he's like, wait, so you're saying if I'm an athlete, I can watch it. So there is a way to game the system. It's you sign up for the meet to run like heat 10 of the 5K and then just don't run it, and then you're in there as an athlete. <laughs> but I'm glad that the BU puts it on. They do a good. They did a great job of hosting this. It was it was a pretty good atmosphere, and yeah, this is basically what ha- was going to happen. Is this going to happen every year that we just see Bauman or some other group and come into BU and take cracks at it? Because it's been happening for a while. I don't really see this trend abating anytime soon because. Every time people run faster, then they say, oh, we have to go to BU. That's the only place to run fast. It's just going to perpetuate itself. Well, personally, if we're going to talk about how to make the sport better, I hope not. I hope that the future of the sport is not running fast at a time trial in the middle of a college meet. No. And let's talk about the negatives here. Are these guys going to world indoors? People say, how can we make the sport more popular? Very simple. Go to the majors. You know, world indoors may not be Wimbledon. Maybe world outdoors is Wimbledon. Maybe World Indoors is the Australian Open. But we got to get these people going to meets that count. They need to figure out a schedule, have the World Indoors six months apart from the World Outdoors. It should not be that hard to peak twice a year and go to that. If Fisher and these guys were excited to compete and go, people would be paying attention to it. Instead, it's, oh, it's a, it's a meet that doesn't ma- matter. Well, guess what? This meet doesn't matter either. I mean, I guess you could say. I mean, at what level are we going to start running the championships? When is this going to happen? Are any of these guys going to World Indoors, John? So, yeah, so here's the situation. Grant Fisher, he he would like to run for, at US at world, US and World Championships. He's like, this is something that interests me. I like going to compete against the best in the world. That's what he wants to do. There are two obstacles in this situation. One, 
the meets are world indoors is too close to world outdoors. I think Jerry Schumacher wants his the biggest meet of the year is world outdoors, and I don't think he likes the idea of having to go all the way to Serbia in late March, middle of March, and then turn things around, have his athletes make the team in the U.S. in the 5K and the 10K, which is what Fisher might end up doing, and those two two separate meets again, the 10K is in May, and then you have Worlds in July. So I think Jerry doesn't seem interested in having many of his athletes run World Indoors. Some of them might still. I think Debut Stafford's going to do it. Mark Scott sounds like he's going to do it, but the American guys, I don't think so. And then the other thing is, so instead of running, it's unclear whether they'll run USA indoors or, or not, because the other thing that's happening is there's a 10K the week after USA indoors that Jesse Williams is putting on out in California. And it sounds like Grant and maybe some of the other Bauman guys are going to be running that. And that one, that doesn't really make much sense to me because Grant Fisher already has the world championship standard. He's going to be running the U.S. championships and the world championships this year in the 10K, most likely. So if he needs the standard for next year, he can probably get it at one of those two meets, or he can just get it in 2023. Like, it doesn't really make sense for a guy to me. Like, you, you only have a limited number of races if you're Grant Fisher per year to just kind of waste one on running a 10K when you already have a standard and when you can run USA Indoors the week before. But they might view, well, what's the point of running USA Indoors if we're not going to go to World Indoors? So partly it's race selection, but I think Jerry Schumacher would be more inclined to have his guys run World Indoors if there was a bigger gap between that and the World Outdoor Championships this year. I know, but it's just excuses. It's just theater. The NFL, they, they, do, they do meets that aren't optimal. I get it. But Nike needs to change the contracts. Get all the shoe companies to, to agree to put one-third of the bonus and the world indoors for the distance runners. And then they'll start to show up, maybe. And maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just go outdoors. But we as fans need to shame people into going into these meets. Otherwise, it's just like, we're going to do what we want. you know. And what, this was fun that these, these times were happening, but it's like impossible as a fan. What am I supposed to do? Like... I'm supposed to watch one meet on Friday in this channel and then another meet on Saturday in this channel and then another one in this one. I mean, I was on the phone when the 5,000 went on. I didn't even watch it. So <laughs> okay. it's a little bit talk. Robert, you talk about these meets being different days, but let's just take a look at Friday. It was a great day of track and field. First up in Chicago, we got two of Nike's top new young guns going for the American record in the mile. Halfway across the country in one direction we got nike's other group breaking that was the women breaking the women's north american record of 5k oops go half go all back all the way across the country we got p julian's group you know doing head-to-head -head matchups in spokane and speaking of pete he's going to be live we're doing a coaches tour live this week thursday 8 p.m don't miss it Pete Julian live on let's run.com video show. But Pete's whole thing is like, we're trying to make track entertaining for the fans, get people to watch, have head heads matchups. You had to pay-per-view it. But like, wait, we have three different meets with Nike's own athletes going on in different parts of the country. It may not make a difference, but if all these people race in one place, it's more presentable for fans, right? Like Nike could do that or the coaches themselves could get together. But I don't know. Would it matter if guys, if 
the short track speed skaters were competing at different places in one place on the margins it makes a difference but our sport is what it is right you make a great point like the, the problem with the sport is everybody does what's in their self-interest and it's not ideal i mean if, if, we, if we could get the three nike groups to all run in the same meet it'd be a cool meet but we just had Rose. we just had the new balance indoor grand prix I guess that was not the perfect week. It was one week too early. And as a coach, I get it. One or two weeks makes a big difference. But what I'm worried about moving forward is, might these groups not go to the crown jewel, what I think is going to be the crown jewel of the indoor circuit, the New Balance new facility in Boston. They may not want to promote the New Balance facility. And shame on you, Nike, if this is the case. Because guess what? Everybody else flies out to Hayward Field and bows down to the, to the Steve Prefontaine statue and the hate nike mythology out there so if the shoe companies can go to the outdoor to hayward field every year you can go indoor to new balance if that's what the action is to make it exciting for the fans so it's just but your olympic analogy is a good one people keep saying how what twinks can we do to make the sports popular it's not going to happen it's just not going to happen like i'm watching the olympics and i'm not thinking wait they just had a ten thousand short track speed skate or speed skating it's suddenly i wonder if the, it, you know the speed skaters like suddenly this is our year we're going to become the big sport now no, we just turn it on. We watch it for a year and for a week, and that's it. We're going to wait four more years to watch it again. We have no interest in becoming lifelong fans of this sport. So, Debbie Downer today. Well, Robert, I don't like that take, though. I don't like just, oh, we can't be as big as a major sport, so just give up. There are ways to improve this sport. Like, having all these athletes in the same building on the same night is an improvement. The mile record attempt, I know you think I'm obsessed with streaming things, but... The only way people could watch two of the most popular athletes in American distance running take a crack at the American record in the mile was by looking at Reed Brown streaming this thing on the Oregon track and field Instagram account. I mean, come on, man. This is a professional sport in the year 2022, and this is how we're watching guys go after the American record. It's a joke. And I think that one, I don't blame the meat management on that one. I think it's Sounds like the Big Ten didn't grant anyone rights to stream that thing. There were multiple entities wanted to step up, including Let's Run.com. And we ended up watching it on an Instagram account. If you put that in the Pete Julian meet, or if you put it in BU, or if, better yet, if you put it in a combination meet where everyone can watch it and you're only paying one price to watch it, you're going to get more eyeballs on it. Oh, guess what, John? You're going to get more eyeballs if it's free on Instagram than if you're having to pay for it. So I was I was fine with the way. That, I mean, should it be broadcast? Yes. We were, we were telling people, hey, we'll fly out there. We'll broadcast it for free. Never heard back because the Big Ten technically holds the rights. So, yeah, that was wrong. But uh, I hey, Instagram and the YouTube that we did for free wasn't too bad because there was no barrier to entry on that. But that's why I said USATF should have stepped up and gotten the rights to all these. They should be broadcasting all these events. It should be part of your membership. You support USA Track and Field. And then etc okay can we talk about some of these actual performances though some more stuff we haven't really talked about the races themselves the secret sauce hopefully not burrito sauce at the barrelman track club people you know is this the greatest training group in the history of the world that's been asked on the message board there were some bad results here do we want to talk about that first I don't know. I'll, I'll lead the way. Let's talk about the negative. I, a couple of negative results in this men's 5,000 in Boston. Look, I've got two. Please. Evan Jager, 
stick that fork in him. 13-13? Th that's not good. That's not good. This guy's Whoa. got 13. I, I, I'm tired. He was the America's best runner. He was like a sub-13 guy. He was basically Fisher, but also hurdled. Like, he used to be so good. He's been injured for so long. He doesn't steeple. He never shows up anymore. How old is he? Uh, uh, I, I just maybe he can get in the me, you know metal bronze and, and and the steeple, but even with the super shoes, I don't think this guy's breaking eight minutes. I, I just don't see it happening. <laughs> I can't believe this take; it's absurd. Maybe he can medal. You're acting like that's a bad thing. No Americans ever medal in the steeple apart from Evan Jager. That's freaking amazing. Okay, and can't break eight minutes. No white guy's ever broken eight minutes. So if that's the bar we're holding. Handing, the standard we're holding to him, I think that's kind of ridiculous. To me, this was a positive sign. Okay, he got beaten by his other teammates who were mostly 5K specialists, but Evan Jager is healthy enough to run 13-13 on February 12th. That has me very excited. He's 32 years old. He's probably not going to be prime Evan Jager again, but if this guy's healthy, I still think he's one of the three best steeplers in the United States. And we'll see how he matches up on the world stage. But the big issue for this guy is he hasn't been healthy the last three years. He was hurt in 2019. 2020, he was actually healthy, but there were no races or no steeples for him to run. Then he was hurt again last year. So this, to me, is a big positive for Evan Jager. 13-13, keep building. He's gonna be, he could be in contention this summer. Okay. We always let John's facts get me off my road to emotional rants. But... <laughs> Okay, you got me upbeat. Sorry, Evan, or your parents, or whoever's listening to this. I, I, I don't want to. I think I'm not a fan, but I wanted to see this guy break eight. I just was. I used to be so into him. I mean, thirteen, thirteen nowadays is like thirteen twenty back in the day. But I, yes, I guess he could be super motivated. Everything goes now between now and good worlds. Well, between now and worlds, maybe. But okay, there's two other negatives here. Drew Hunter, thirteen fifty three. Now. This isn't as bad as it looks. People are saying he's done and ripping him off and writing him off, etc. I will note, do you guys realize that 3K, his split was only six seconds behind Grant Fisher's? So they ended up a minute behind <laughs> 2K later. They were in different heats. But that was not encouraging. But the other one here is not even in the results. Who was the guy that said he needed, to, when he, he realized when he has his best indoors, outdoor seasons, he has a good indoor season and he needed to have a good indoor season and he wanted to have a good indoor season. Yeah. I don't think he's raced at all. Matthew Centrowitz. Thank you, John. How old is he and what's going on with him? Did anyone say, did you bring up his name? Did you ask anyone to get the scuttlebutt? What's going on with Mr. Centro? I, I didn't ask. Uh, it's a good question, Robert. He's 32 years old now. And yeah, I didn't see him in Boston. He was at Milrose as a fan. I did see him there. But normally when Centro's not racing, it means he's hurt. I don't know what the case is right now, but he's dealt with a lot of niggling injuries the last few years. I don't know. I don't have an official spec explanation for why he wasn't racing, though. And I don't think we've given any praise to the women's races. Debut Stafford, 14.31. Then Cranny, what'd she run 14? 1433 for Cranny. I mean, the most impressive thing to me was to be Stafford, her, her clothes is just absurd. I talked to Shalane Flanagan afterwards, and she was like, yeah, she can just run 30 seconds off of any pace for her last lap, which is insane. And she's like, I don't know how she even does it. 
she's perplexed by how good she is at closing. And remember, she ran 29.04 for her last 200 when she won the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. She set a Canadian record in that race of 8.33. In this race in Boston, she closed in 8.30, which is faster than the Canadian record she set a week earlier. And not only that, Jenny Simpson and Shannon Robery, their career lifetime best for that distance, indoors are out with 8.29. Debut Stafford ran 8.30 after running 2K before that. It, it's just nuts to me. And yes, you got the shoes, but it's still a ridiculous performance. This is a woman, she's been a contender. She, you know, she's been kind of a the second tier in the 1500 because we're in a golden age for the women's 1500 right now on the global stage. But... You know, if those very, very heavy hitters like Kipigon and Hassan don't show up to World Indoors, Laura Muir's said she's. it doesn't look like she's going to be running World Indoors either or she's been injured recently. She's a serious medal contender, maybe gold medal contender if the race, if the pace is slow this year. To boost Stanford's ability to close, I mean, it's a, a kick's a wonderful thing in distance running. It's amazing how that works. But she's got great speed, right? 356. I mean, the 15 still may be her best event, but indoor 3K, I'm really liking her chances. But how about a little love for Elise Cranny? She was winning this race till at the bell and runs 1433.17, crushing the American record by, what, 14 seconds? Yep. Uh, I mean... We're, we've been going gaga here over Grant Fisher, but th- this was fabulous. And and if Debo Stafford closed in eight thirty, that means Cranny closed in eight thirty two. You know, give or take half a second, second somewhere in there. Just phenomenal run. I, I, sure, she was a superstar junior athlete, but never won a, never won an NCAA title. More so with the women, I think the young talents. You don't know what's going to happen with them, but we're, we're seeing with. Drew Hunter, you know, there's questions how good of a pro he'll be, but obviously she just she had a lot of potential, but to finally put it together like this, well done. It was an incredible weekend for Cranny and for the BTC in general, and that gets me to my message board thread of the week. It's entitled, BTC Has a Secret. This thread's amazing, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but... Basically, there's two main parts of this thread. And one is, what makes Bowerman so good? And two is, is this the greatest track and field training group in the history of the world? And let's start with that second question. Is BTC the greatest training group ever? And, you know, people post that. And then, you know, in the year 2022, someone's going to have to say, oh, come on, you're being racist. And they didn't quite use the R word, but they almost did. They're saying, basically, you know, you're being disrespectful to the towards the runners of other nations that are credible, incredible. And someone's saying, like, any group, you know, think about the groups of Gabriel Celesi and Bekele or Kipchoge. Like, you know, we're just, you're American-centric and you're not thinking of these other groups. But the person who asked this question, Rimby makes just fires back with a very good response and says, name another pro group that has six guys at 13 flat or faster, and then another 10 at sub 1310. So that's an incredible point because they have another 10. They have 
They have 16 guys. I don't think they have 16 guys in the entire team. That doesn't sound right. I think they have five guys sub 13, and then another four at sub 13 10, from what I can tell. The sub 13 guys being Mohamed, Grant Fisher, Mark Scott, Woody Kincaid, Lopez Lamong. Sub 13 10, Matthew Centrowitz, Evan Jager, Sean McGordy, Kieran Tuntivate. The six came from 13 flat or better, the counting Centrowitz. So, anyways. Has there ever been a training group of six guys at 13 flat or better? And the answer is probably no. Because, look, go back to the years when there used to be a lot more people in the 5,000. I mean, 2012, monster year in the 5,000, 16 guys broke, you know, 13 flat. But one of those is Bernard Agat, one of those is Galen Rupp, you know, and one of those is Mo Farah. So that means there's only 13 guys total from Kenya and Ethiopia that were breaking 13. So the odds that all six of the Ethiopians, one, two, three, yeah, I think it's six Ethiopians and seven Kenyans, the odds that all of them are in the same training group are pretty damn, pretty damn low. So this very well could be the first time in history you've got that many people, you know, in the same group. And, you know, it's just fascinating to think about. I have the answer to why this is the top training group in the world. Oh, come on. This is just insulting. It really is insulting. This group has, what, one medal? I mean, it's like, I don't want to call them a bunch of B-teamers, but... It's more than one medal. Mohamed has two medals. Evan Jager has two medals. Matthew Centrowitz is an Olympic champion. But, look, it depends on what you're valuing, right? If you want total depth, fine. But, like, the Nike Oregon Project at its peak had Galen Rupp and Mo Farah. Mo Farah was the best 5K runner in the world. And Matthew Centrowitz was the Olympic champion in the 1500. Right now, Ronge Athletics Club, they have Timothy Chariot and Elijah Manningoy. They were back-to-back world champions. They went 1-2 in the 1500 at Worlds. They've also got the world junior champion, Vincent Kida, and George Manningoy, who's a former world junior champion as well. If you look in the marathon, you know it's a different event group, but... Elliot Kipchoge and Jeffrey Kamwara are in the same training group. Faith Kipyagon, she doesn't train with them, but she's under the same global Jos Hermans, you know, Patrick Sang system there. She's the greatest miler of all time. Like, if you're going for absolute top end, Bauman, they're not close. But if you're talking in terms of depth, like Robert was, I don't think we've ever seen a a training group this deep in the 5K. Yes, this is the deepest 5,000-meter training group ever. Okay, I stand corrected. Well, well, Weldon wants me to make a correct. It's the deepest, but it's just interesting to think about it. Yes, I, you didn't even mention the Ugandan group, John, with those people. I mean, th- those groups are better top end. Well, yeah, but Kip Limo doesn't train with Cheptegei. Like, it's Cheptegei and Stephen Kisa, and, you know, they don't have, like, a, a, another star like that. Well, the, the, the reality also is, I mean, I, should I say it? Could a 1302 Kenyan even make any money in the 5,000? They may not. So they might just be running the marathon trying to bang out on 206, 207. So this could be sort of, you know, some sort of people say white privilege. This could be like U.S. privilege that Jerry has this group. But it is an interesting thing. And the question is, what makes this group so good? And the answer to me is simple, very, very simple. They get more talent. The second poster, the very first response is, from Dal Runner 37. Their secret is getting the top talent in the world and training like monsters year round. So I wouldn't say they get the top talent in the world. They get the top talent in the US and they train like monsters. And you know, when, when you get the best people, have them train together, 
give them altitude and a very smart coach in Jerry Schumacher, these are the results you're going to get. They're going to basically reach the genetic potential of, of, of the things. And we've seen it before. It's a Bob Kennedy. It's a, it's a Galen Rupp. You know, I know Kennedy never won, but we, we kind of know where that is. It used to be uh, the, the limit was somewhere in the 12, 55 to 13 minute range. And now I think we're seeing Western athletes run faster than that. Obviously, Jacob Ingebrigtsen ran 12.48 last year. Yeah, so can we stop with the genetic potential? We really don't even know. Like, Jacob Ingebrigtsen could win the 5K and the 1500 this year. He could win them both. So, like, like just stop pontificating on things you don't really know anything about. Yeah, Robert, I think the poster nails it. It's top talent and training like animals year-round. Yes, you need a good coach in Jerry Schumacher. Like, not just anyone could do this, but if you put them all together and they're training really hard year round, you're going to get good results. And the thing about the dirty little secret about Bowman track club, which we're starting to learn now from some of the exits is it's not for everyone. You know, it's a pretty structured system. And the first couple of years, Jerry, Jerry's not going to baby you. He's not going to adapt the workouts for you. He's going to say, these are the workouts. If you get dropped, you get dropped, you know, and guys like Grant Fisher or Shelby Houlihan, or pretty much all of their athletes, after a couple of years going through the system, they will start to, if they hang and they can stay healthy, they'll start to see big performance increases. I mean, maybe using Shelby Houlihan as an example gets me canceled these days, but like Elise Cranny, look at her. Elise Cranny wasn't anything special for her first couple of years. Now she's around 1433. So what happens is if you can stick, and Grant told me after the race, he said it's adapt or die. And some people, they can't hang, they get hurt. They, it doesn't work for them. But the ones who survive see these huge gains in fitness, and that's that's part of the secret for them, which isn't really a secret. Who are all the top people who bombed out of the Bowerman Track Club? I don't really even f- find that argument. Thank you, Weldon. I, I went on the message board last night because someone says, like, Jerry just throws the eggs against the wall and, and the top people survive. And that's what a lot of college coaches do. I mean – I don't know. We're not supposed to negative recruit, but basically when I was at Cornell, eh, I don't want to go there. But at one Ivy school, it was all focused on distance. I mean, I just felt like, the, you know, when you bring in 10 distance runners every year, of course, two of them are going to be good and seven of them aren't going to be good. But this person said that's what Jerry does. I don't agree. And I, I went on the message board last night and said, please name one person that has not done well in the Bowerman Drive Club, at least for a little bit. I think, the, and, and my response to that was, I mean, like, Chris Derrick is probably like one of the bigger failures of the Bowman Track Club. And he was a 13 or 18 guy in college and he ran 13 or 8 for the Bowman Track Club. Like Kate Grace, maybe? Yeah, Robert, that Kate Grace even she she made a world's team when she was with Bowman, right? No, actually, I think it was 2017. But no, she I think she, I don't think she did. But no, Robert, I think your point is correct. Even the ones who end up leaving, like Mario Hull or well, Sinclair Johnson last year, she left. She was only there for really, really for one year. She didn't really have any success. So that's maybe, but maybe you, Jerry would argue, well, she didn't stick around long enough. But I think your point is well taken. Most athletes who are in Bowerman, at least for one or two years, they will find big results. And then it's a question of do they want to stick in the system every year or do they want more say over their training? Someone like Colleen Quigley, she had a lot of success early. Then she found herself getting hurt a lot. She didn't seem like she liked being on the team. So she left. And Marielle Hall, again, she had a lot of success early, and then she started slowing down. Didn't seem like Jerry was going to bend on some of the workouts, so she left. So that does happen, and we do see you know 
Evan Jager hasn't been able to stay healthy. Quigley hasn't been able to stay healthy. Maybe that would have happened with any coach. But yes, the main point is most people who join this team will see at least one or two years of very elite performance, often more than that. All right, enough Bowerman worship. Let's go to the race that I actually watched live and was really excited about. The men's mile, Chicago. Cooper Tier beats Cole Hawker again. Is this going to be permanent or is he just better in the time trials? What do you think of it, Jonathan? I think he's better in the time trials, but I mean, Cooper Tier is just a really good runner. Like, I don't think there's that crazy. Like, they've, from everything I've heard, Matt Wisner, who was the rabbit, uh, rabbit of this race and who ran with them in Oregon he wrote an article this week basically just saying that they're neck and neck in workouts when they race, I expect it to be, you know, a flip of a coin and yeah, in a time trial, like when it's just an absolute test of fitness and they're exactly hanging with each other in workouts, I kind of expect that to be the way if it's a slower race, I would favor Cole Hawker because he has a better kick, but a race like this. Yeah. I think, I mean, it was really close. It's not like Cooper blew Cole away. They were finished closely, but I think Cooper may be either slightly fitter right now or slightly better at this kind of race. Yeah, I said on Thursday that I wanted Tier to win the win and the American record because we don't know what's going to happen. For all we know, he can never make an Olympic team. Hawker's already made the Olympics. He's already done well in the Olympics. It would have been cool to see Tier get this. And I'm still surprised they didn't do it. You know, I don't think the rabbiting was ideal. It went out a little bit too slow. But one question I have is, and I'm a big proponent of the shoes impacting things. But someone made a very good point in the message board. I don't have the name in front of me, but I remember reading it. If we're saying the shoes are worth three seconds, or a little bit less than a mile, does that mean that Johnny Gregoric, who, by the way, is the American record holder, in my opinion, it's disgraceful. Can we just say it out loud? It's disgraceful that we have Bernard Lagat mic'd up as the American record holder in this event. Like, he was running for Kenya at the time. It doesn't make any sense. We should just all ignore that record. Johnny Gregoric should be the American record holder. I've sort of, you know, John, John used to compete against Johnny and loves Johnny. I kind of give Johnny a hard time, but sometimes. But the guy ran 349 in the mile. So he should be the American record holder. He should have gotten his, his day in the sun, and he still should. Your argument is that we should take the record away from a guy who was an American citizen who we didn't know it was a record at the time and give it to a guy who was an American citizen who we didn't know it was a record at the time. John, this isn't that hard. When you're running for – do we is Mondo Duplantis the world record holder for America? Yes or no? No. He's an American citizen. Just saying there are rules, Robert. I don't I I think it's kind the of rules a silly have been rule, rule that you could I think but the rule has subsequently been changed, but that's the time. That's what everyone's shooting for. It's been the American record for a while. This isn't some new news story that Bernard Lagat is the American record holder in the mile. Now, if you want to take issue, you can say a few years ago, Bernard Lagat did have the American record in the fifteen hundred was three twenty nine. And then someone realized after Mondo broke the American record at the European Championships, hey, wait, Lagat ran 327 while he was American but not competing for America. Let's make that the American record. That is the thing you can really get freaked out about and say this is ridiculous. But no, Lagat has had this American record for quite a while. I don't have any issue with him being the American record holder. Well, John, that's exactly what they did here. It's the exact same thing. Someone went out and realized, they're like, wait, Lagat was technically an American citizen. The rule at the time was the record was by the fastest American citizen. But 
if we're if the rule now is you have to be representing America, can we retroactively go back and make that the rule? It's not like I don't know. Anyways, I got distracted and angry. The reason why I brought this up is someone made a great point about the super shoes. If the shoes are worth three seconds, are we saying Johnny Gregorick's a three forty six guy, and that he's, and that he's, you know, basically, well, because it'd be three forty six on the end. So really, a three forty seven guy is he three seconds better than Cooper Tier and Cole Hawker? Well, at that at that point in his career, at BU, which might. Has, I'd say he's probably a little faster than Chicago in a really good race where he has people to chase. Remember, he chased, you know, Yomif Kajelcha beat him by a fair amount in that race, but he had people to chase. I don't think it's that crazy. Like, Johnny Gart was a world championship finalist. He was a really good runner. And with the super shoes, you got to readjust your reality. Yeah, I don't think it's crazy to say that Johnny Gregoric with the suit. Like, I don't remember that he ran that race in early 2019. I assume he would have been racing in ASICs. That's who his sponsor was, but. I don't think it's that nuts to say he could if he could run 349 without him, then he can run 347 with him. But, John, this is a guy who his PBs are 334, which is like a 350, 51 mile, and a 352, 94 outdoor mile. He's never come close, really, to this performance. So we're now supposed to put him with super shoes. So now we're supposed to put him three seconds faster. It's just an interesting debate. Do you believe in super shoes or not? I mean, why would they affect him a different, I guess... Maybe your uh, one argument would be Johnny Gregoric has perfect running form and therefore the shoes wouldn't benefit him as much as anyone else. I don't know if that's really the case. I would just say if everyone else is getting a boost of two to three seconds, why wouldn't he? He did run 349. That's a fact. I don't see why he's any exception. It's kind of crazy to think. I mean, you look at the rest of his accomplishments, the 349. It's like, oh, wow, that PR sounds a little different from all the others, but he did run it. So I don't see why you would question the 347 with the shoes. Actually, speaking of the shoes, this is another thing I wanted to mention was how incredible Alistair Craig's collegiate record is in the 3K. Like, Yard Nagoose, after the race, he just beat it, you know, just came just under at 738.13, and the record was 738.59. And he was like, man, that was really hard. You know, I have, he has a, he FaceTimed with Craig afterwards. He's like, I had such a respect for this record. And, he didn't. He was like, "How the hell did that guy run 7:38 without the super shoes back in 2004?" I think people. We just need to respect how like insane that performance was. It was kind of there, and no one even no one even challenged it really. Like Edward Cheserek, fantastic runner, 7:40. He was the closest anyone came to that record until Nagus. But then this weekend we had Nagus run 7:38, and Abdi Noor, who's never really been close to winning an NCAA title, he ran 7:40. So. You know, now this record people we might be more common. Nagus, it's also weird. He normally wouldn't be in college. Like, if you're this good, if you're already an Olympian, if you're an NCAA champion, a lot of those people would have just turned pro after that last year, but he wanted to come back, run cross-country for his team. So normally you don't have someone this good in college. But, yeah, I just wanted to say how, like, Alistair Craig, 738 in 2004 without the shoes is pretty freaking nuts. Edward Cheshire didn't go pro, and he was way better than... I guess he wasn't an Olympian. All right, have we had enough track and field talk? Can we talk women's figure skating? Because I think it's very relevant to track and field. Well, are we going to mention Shane Strike at all? The American record in Louisville? Because this kind of was just randomly, like, the American Track League meet was on 
10 a.m. on Saturday morning on ESPN2. Again, kudos to Paul Doyle for getting the Puma American Track League. I'm sorry. They've got a title sponsor. It's on TV. Like, that's good for the sport. And then this wasn't even supposed to be... It was supposed to be a record attempt, and then one of the guys pulled out. And so I think the the organ- meet organizers were talking to Amy Yoda Begley, who's the coach of the Atlanta Track Club, and... Shane strikes coach and saying like, Oh yeah, with the record attempts off. And they're like, no, no, we still want to go for it. And so strike, he went out right behind the paces and he led basically the whole thing held on to 16. And then the announcers did do a good job. They caught it before the end of the race, which I thought was good. I think it's also because Dave Milner, who was the in stadium PA person was right on top of it the whole time. He realized what was going on. And yeah, Shane strike, a guy no one had heard of, a year ago, let's be honest. He had a pretty middling career at Minnesota. He goes to Lipscomb for a sixth year and makes this big improvement. He's an NCAA finalist. He gets down to 145. He just misses out on the Olympic trials final. And then that convinces him to keep going in the sport, signs with the Atlanta Track Club, and now he's an American record holder. But it's pretty crazy. Like, if COVID happens, is Shane Strike even still... If COVID doesn't happen... Is Shane Strike even still running in the sport? I think that's a legitimate question. He said there were times where he considered giving it up. So it's pretty crazy. And now American record holder, he'll be going into USA's trying to make a world's team. No, without the six year from COVID, no way. This guy's out of the sport. I mean, this is amazing that he's an American record holder. And it shows there are people out there who just aren't training the right way or they've been injured or whatever it is. I mean, here's his Instagram post last year from June 15th. What a blessing this last year has been. A year ago, I thought my collegiate career was over, and now I'm All-American. took six years, long years of hard work and patience, but I never lost sight of my goals. So that's June 15th. But being All-American doesn't mean, hey, fast forward, what, eight months, and you're an American record holder? I mean, he's just been firing at all cylinders. I th- I, right? I think he's going to make the world's team. I mean, who else are you going to put ahead of him? Well, if Brazier's not running it, I assume he'd run the 800 indoors. Right. Isaiah Harris. Because oh. I mean, also... Um, Bryce Hopple. I think Hopple putting, and Isaiah Harris could both beat him. And pro- well, I, I probably would Ho- pick them to beat him. I was putting Hopple ahead, but he's got a really good chance. And is this sort of shades of Drew Wendell? Now, Drew Wendell was better than him in, in college. Well, except for the final very bit of the last year but you know guys you hadn't heard of who do really well world indoors right off the bat i think this could be a similar story it it is reminiscent and drew windle lest we forget silver medal at world indoors in 2018 if you make the team in the u.s i mean i guess bryce hoffel did just get pants by mariano garcia so maybe we readjust after this leaving meet on thursday because there's going to be an incredible 800 in that race but yeah, if you make the if you make the final at World Indoors, anything can happen. But you got to make that US team first. I mean, it's a six man final at World Indoors, so half the people medal. So yeah. All right, I think that's about. I'm about tracked out, Robert. You have figure skating takes you want to unload, and somehow there's you're going to draw a connection to track and field. Well, I think it's very relevant to track and field. I love figure skating, by the way. Kind of into the pairs. I don't think. That, I haven't seen that yet. But did I miss it? Or they just had the ice dancing? I haven't seen it either. I feel like they must be saving it for the final weekend, right? My romantic side, I just, it's beautiful. 
I don't like how the regular skating is now all about who can do the super jumps. Anyways, the big story in figure skating is a 15-year-old Russian skater who is, I mean, she's only 15, but she's regarded by some as the greatest skater in the history of the world already in terms of what she can perform. She's the Olympic favorite. Comes out, she competes in the team competition. Russia wins gold. Oh, wait, it's not really Russia. It's the Russian Olympic Committee, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And they don't give out the medals because it comes out that she took a drug test on December 25th and she tested positive for a banned drug. And they had an emergency hearing over the weekend. They're going to let her compete in the individual. It's already started. And people were outraged. She's a doper, blah, blah, blah. She shouldn't be competing, etc. I mean, I was shocked. The you know, in America, where we we just make excuses for all the dopers, seems like in the professional sports like baseball and football, I was stunned in NBC. I mean, the commentators held back. They're like, "Who are the two? Tara Lipinski? Was that her name? Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski. They're like, we don't know what to say. She shouldn't be out there. We don't. They didn't even want to comment on the on her performance, which, by the way, was amazing. I mean, this woman's been under extreme scrutiny. Imagine being fifteen. You're not sure if you're going to compete. People are calling you a doper. She goes out there and, and, and skated amazingly well as in the first place. So they've let her skate. If she wins, they're not going to give out the medals. We're having a medal ceremony because she still could be DQ'd. So it's pretty interesting about this. And what do you guys think? When I first heard about this, I was like, there's no way they're going to let someone who tested positive compete. And I just thought, if it does, it's a joke. But now that I've researched a little bit more about it, I'm going to change my tune on this. I think that they're following the rules. And it's appropriate that she competes because you don't want to have someone not compete if you're going to, you can still strip the medal later. And the number one is, doesn't appear that the testing was done in an accurate time frame. If WADA is going to hold athletes to a zero-fault standard, we need to hold them to a zero-fault standard. And you have 21 days to get the to – get, to get every test should be done within 41 days. There's no way. Roger Pilkey, who's a Colorado professor, has written a substack. We'll link to this in the show notes as well. Someone write that down so we know what to link to. He has written this article that says no drug test should ever be done after 41 days because you have 21 days to get it to the lab and then they need to really test it within 20 days. Now, it says that there is going to be a delay. They can notify someone. I don't know. Unless they notified someone that this didn't happen, this should have happened beforehand. And you don't just wait and then do it three days before the Olympics. Now, why? I guess you could ask, why was there a delay? Were they trying to cover something up? Were they just being lazy because their test was taken on Christmas? I don't know. But I totally understand now like why the U.S. Supreme Court, in a lot of cases, they don't rule like a precedent. They try to rule on technicalities because it's easier just to say, you know what? She's a minor. We didn't do the drug test in the right time. We're just going to ignore it. And that would probably rub some people the wrong way because this girl, I mean, it also has come out according to the New York Times that she's on three heart medications. So it looks like they really are taking this to me. Of course, there's a Salazar link in here. Of course. The story that never goes away. Well, look, here's the problem, Robert. We have a system. We have a set of processes and rules. And they're not being followed in this case. The system The system is, if you test positive, you are provisionally suspended. And No, John, the system is... There's WADA hearings. There's a court of arbitration in sport. The court of arbitration in sport rules. 
And you follow and those banned, rules. You are, if you are provisionally suspended, you cannot compete. That's the rule. The court of arbitration and sport ruled they have to let her compete. They're following the rules. I don't understand. It's like these people, they're like, oh, I'm for free speech. I, I support free speech. And then someone says something offensive. And they're like, silence the speech. We either believe in the doping system or we don't. The highest court ruled she can compete. They have to let her compete. What are they supposed to do? Just say, nope, sorry. We don't, we don't like the ruling of the court? That's, no, 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 no. I, look, yes, legally, under, after the CAS decision, she is allowed to compete. But what is the justification provided by CAS? On what grounds have they said that she's allowed to compete, even though she should be consi- provisionally suspended right now? I don't know. So you're one of those types that the Supreme Court rules and you just don't like the decision. You're just going to ignore it. I'm saying if they're making a rule on if they make a ruling on false pretenses, then I think that's a big issue, Robert. Well then. Well, you got to remember, John's liberal, so he'll pack the court or just change the number of people in the court. <laughs> yes, he doesn't believe in following the Supreme Court when it doesn't rule in his direction. Uh, okay, joke, my people. take is the rule maybe needs to be changed, but or expedite these hearings with the Olympics. This shouldn't have gotten to this situation, but there's this, apparently a chance she's going to get off. She's also a minor, with, which means there's questions of culpability. Is she responsible for what's in her system? But they thank God this isn't a sport like track and field or like tennis or something where you're really impacting somebody else, right? This is just a judge sport. Her performance doesn't re- too much impact what the other people do. But I've seen other arguments saying, look, you're hurting more people by not giving out the awards. They want to be in the medal stand, that sort of stuff. It's just an unfortunate situation. I I wish somehow they could have expedited the hearings. But when the drug test came back on February 6th, the Olympics had already started. I don't know, right? Obviously, if somebody tests positive at the Olympics, they're DQ'd. So who knows what's going on? But I think you have to follow the court of arbitration sport ruling. Like They can't just invalidate it. So I, I just don't get the sort of people say, oh, yeah, I don't want her competing. But what are they supposed to do? Just make up the rules because you don't like it? No, you got to follow the rules. Well, that, that's the reason. That's the argument they're saying. They're saying CAS didn't follow the rules in this case. I do think we need to read the CAS ruling, but I don't like this new water code that <laughs> that in the sense of they have a protection for minors. So you can just dope a minor on purpose now, then they, they get off. So if, if you're going to give it the protection for minors, if the rule ends up being, if you test positive as a minor, and unless we know you inject yourself, I mean, first of all, a 15-year-old could inject themselves with steroids on purpose, but I know this isn't steroids, but if you're just going to let them off, then the solution is simple. Nobody can compete in the Olympics until they're 18 because you can't just let people get off if they're minors because Russia will take advantage of that. But I don't know. When I read this Pilkey piece, at first I was outraged because the headline is like the persecution of this woman. And I was like, come on, dude. I wanted her banned. Then I read it. And I'm like, nope, they were supposed to do it within 45 days. Now, I haven't read any insuation that they purposely waited to 45 days because Russia was trying to pressure them. You know, I just think it was an aptitude on these people and whatever. Like, well, WADA so- needs to get its act together. They need uh-huh. to do stuff in a timely fashion. And this is kind of the opposite of the Shelby Houlihan case where they were delaying her case, delaying her case, delaying her case. And Shelby ended up missing out on one of her appeals because she got just basically a one-shot deal at the Court of Arbitration Sport. She didn't get her initial case because she wanted to be helped before the Olympics because she thought she was going to be clear to go to the Olympics. So these people need to act in a very timely fashion, much more timely than what they're currently doing. Yes, absolutely, Robert. That's the whole reason that we're in this mess. I mean, well, you could also say that 
Russia being allowed to compete here, even though they hadn't met all the criteria for reinstatement and they were reinstated by WADA and that paved the way for them to compete at the Olympics. And, oh, it's Russia again. That, that's something that people will point to as Russia shouldn't even be at these Olympics to begin with. But the systems let her down. Yeah, her test came too late. 15 years old, somewhat like either she was, this is unintentional, which I'm guessing it's unintentional, or even if it was intentional, someone gave her access to a 15-year-old to dr- drugs. So, you know, she's not being supported properly. So that's a big issue as well. So if in light of that, you say, like, I don't think it's the greatest tragedy in the world that she's competing. If she is competing and she turns out the drug, the doping ban's legit, her result will be annulled. She won't get the medal, you know, but, you know, is that a worse situation than if she's cleared and she's not allowed to compete at all in the Olympics? When did L-carnitine become a heart drug? Well, that's not the that's not the drug she was she's going to be banned for though. I know, but there, she said there's three drugs, and one of the heart drugs is listed as L-carnitine. I'm like, what? But yeah. I also want to know. Maybe we should start a thread this and let's run. Will the heart? Obviously, they're taking it for a reason. Assuming she took this drug, is she just too jittery and it's going to calm her down? Like, what's the point of taking a heart drug? She's a 15 year old phenom, and also she's 15. So if the Olympics, I guess this Olympics didn't get delayed, but they just find these, I was reading the coach, the coach really pushes people. It sounds like it's kind of like these teen running phenoms. They're sort of done by the time they're 18. Well, the hard drug, I believe, boosts endurance. But wait, Robert, I was told there's going to be a tr- connection to track somewhere in here. I haven't heard well, one yet. Can you please are. make this worth my while? I wasn't, I haven't been studying Russian figure skating for the podcast this week. John, we need to have faith. The sport or track and field means nothing if we don't have faith in anti-doping. So, you know, they got to follow the rules. They need to be consistent. They need to get, be more professional about this. There's nothing more important than, 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 than that. Weldon and I are totally genetic equals because I did start a thread last night. People think I'm making apologies for the skater. I said, hey, if she was on this drug, how would it help her? Would it even be helping her three weeks later? And I t- actually mentioned this thread to one of my buddies. He's like, yes, the training... The drug helps you train better, and then you're a better performer because of it. And there's a fascinating Reddit thread about this coach and the training. I'm going to read from that. The coach is known to overtrain skaters and promote dieting in such a way that likely leaves skaters with less than optimal nutrition status and hydration. They're on the ice two to three times as long as their competitors and do as many run-throughs of their programs in one day as many competitors do in a week. And they encourage skaters to come back very early from injuries. But dot, 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 dot. The insane jumping... This alongside with the insane jumping and repetition and tense drills would be very difficult to do without doping. Until this test, we thought her athletes were just determined enough to get through it, but I guess this test shows there's the possibility a secret sauce went into making the intense style of training possible. So I guess in theory, this part may be true. So yes, there, there is a big theory that this actually is key to their success, etc. and apparently the Russians have used this drug in the past. The connection to track and field um, is very simple. One... Shakari Richardson has commented on this case, and she put out a tweet. Shakari. No, it's Shakari. It's Shakari. Her li- literally, her handle on Twitter is it's Kerry. So it's Shakari Richardson. My apologies, Shakari. Leave the correct pronunci- Leave the pronunciation corrections to the master here. Well then. I could easily take this part out, but I'm going to leave it in to let people know I'm human, unlike you guys. I don't need to like cover up my mistakes. But Robert, you had a point to make about Shakari Richardson. I don't see that. Yes. Her weighing in on this situation 
it somehow the New York Times decided this is a big deal. I don't really view it that way. How is Shakari has thought she she starts playing the race card here, but what's her argument? Wait, 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 wait. The New York Times picked up on it. Oh yeah, they had it was in their Olympic updates. Like they tweeted out something about Shakari Richardson has weighed in on this. Oh, of course. Well, it's newsworthy if somebody prominent says something, but. She's entitled she to her just, opinion. I just disagree. I think with it's her. interesting what she said. She said the only difference I see is I'm a black young lady. Can we get a solid answer on the difference of her situation and mine's? My mother died and I can't run, and was also favored to place top three. And to me, it's not a big track and field take, John. It's just a societal take. I think it's wrong that we've raised a generation of people that that the the default thing is whenever there's a difference between a black and a white person to think that it's racism, and the differences between her case. In this case, are vast. One, Shikari admitted Shikari admitted to taking the drug that she was banned for. This young woman is denying it. Two, this woman is a minor; she's fifteen. Shikari is twenty-one. You know, I mean, hello. It's, it's being handled by a different governing body. It's USADA, not Rusada, and the test was turned around much faster. And the system worked in Shikari's case, where the test result was turned around faster. Yes, it's, it's apples and oranges. But I argued for a long time. I, d I thought Shakari should be allowed to compete in the Olympics. A, a marijuana ban should be, you know, like a misdemeanor. You shouldn't miss the Olympics for it. But in both cases, it's kind of similar in the sense of the technicality, the legal ease of the rules is what's protecting them. And Shakari's thing, they meant you're out. And in this minor's case, she's a minor apparently, so the rules don't apply to her or the testing wasn't done in the right frame. I don't know. But some obscure court has ruled for it. You know, it could be that Russia is also more powerful and corrupt in the Olympic movement than America is. Uh, I don't know, but I just don't see race here. And, and, I, and it's disappointing to me that that's what I get it. There's a lot, there is racism. I'm, I'm not denying that. I'm not saying it doesn't. Don't try to cancel me. But it's just like our default should not to be to think that every difference is some sign of racial injustice, etc. The other track and field connection I want to make is it's been very interesting to me to see Travis Tiger mouthing off on this case and putting lots of comments out there about how she's, you know, he told the New York Times, look, she's also, they found two other drugs in her system that are, are heart medication. It looks like they really are trying to help her endurance here, etc. So he's going to mouth off on this case? Why doesn't he mouth off on the Shelby Houlihan case? Well, Travis Tiger has mouthed off multiple times about how he thinks that meat contamination is a serious issue and to me he's pretty fair he calls it like he sees it and i think most of the time he calls it correctly like this case he thinks the normal process isn't being followed and he thinks that's a problem in when it comes to finding low levels of you know these meat contamination products in samples he's called that out too and he's asked water to take steps to correct that like if he thinks there's an issue that's affecting the sport he'll call it out I don't really see how it's different. Like, you're allowed to hold different opinions on different issues, Robert. Okay, but then he hasn't said anything on the whole can case, so does he? Does, it, does that mean that he doesn't think that there's anything wrong with this and her case should be banned? I would like, I, I, I value his opinion. I just think it's weird that he'll mouth off on this Russian case and that's sort of political and he's, he testifies in Congress but won't say anything about the Hulahan case. I think a lot of people like yourself who have defended her should should 
you know, what, what, if he comes out and says, you know what, her extensive, I do think meat contamination is, is a problem. But in this case, this, I don't think it is. I think Cass made the right decision on Shelby Houlihan. Would that impact how you feel about it? I think that's fair, a fair question to be asked of him. I think it's a fair question to, for him to answer. And if he doesn't answer, I'd like to know the explanation. Because if he thinks, well, I guess the issue, the, the USADA thing, sorry, the Houlihan thing, her test was not handled by USADA. It was an AIU test. So, you know, again, the Valley Ava situation, that's not a USADA thing either. And he's weighed in on that. So, yeah, maybe it is fair to ask him. And I'd like to know if he's not going to give an answer on that. What's the rationale for not speaking his mind on it? I would just like people to be consistent. One of the things that I always think about is try to be consistent, no matter if it's for you or against you, be intellectually consistent. I would like him either to mouth off on all the cases or none of the cases. And but by doing it in the Russian case, it makes this whole thing look political. I don't want it to be political. Uh, you know, I, with the state sponsored doping, I said Russia should have been kicked out of the Olympics. There has to be a penalty for that. It's unfortunate for the individual athletes. What they did was letting them back in as individuals. That doesn't hurt Russia. There's been no penalty paid as a country for that. So I just I would like intellectual consistency on these people's parts when we're dealing with doping. Well, I think you can argue that he has been intellectually consistent under that framework then because he has consistently said WADA let them in when they shouldn't have. This is a big problem. And now it's being manifest on one of the biggest stages in the sport, the Olympic Games. But he's not being consistent because he won't say anything about Shelby. He only goes because, in this case, he's going to get the support of Congress. He's going to become more of a high-profile person. It's going to help his organization with the U.S. Congress because this is turning into a political thing. I do not want a doping case involving a 15-year-old to be political. So I watched the Olympics last night as a human interest story. And I just thought, I know many people think she shouldn't be out there, but what she did on that ice was amazing. Was it perhaps oh, pharmaceutically enhanced? Yes. Here we go. Amazing. She Is, almost fell what? down. She almost fell down. She put up the best score by far. What are you talking about? Do you think a lot of, we have Simone Biles and all these other athletes saying they can't handle the pressure, et cetera. <laughs> I can't believe you still can't pronounce her name right. All right. We talked about the connection to doping. I don't think we need to get into figure skating judging. Can we get back on track here? There is some track stuff I want to talk about. Speaking of doping, Justin Gatlin retired. Rojo has some takes on that. I'd like to hear that rather than more Russian you know, figure skating judge talk. I'm just a little surprised on the Tiger thing that this is an ongoing case and he's weighing in. And you know, maybe it's not his jurisdiction, but I am a little bit surprised. When I read it, I was like, whoa, is he supposed to comment until it's over? I, I just I didn't know the proper protocol. But okay, let's get to Justin Gatlin. If we're going to talk about prominent dopers, the, what do I call him? The world champion in the 100 meters. Retired from the sport on his 40th birthday. And, I mean, Justin Catlin had an amazing, fascinating, I don't know how you want to say it, career. Some people want to call him a two-time drug cheat. I think the first, he got a drug ban in college for taking Ritalin, which was totally, he was totally, like, legitimately on Ritalin. I don't think he should be called a drug cheat for that one. I guess he violated the anti-doping rules. Then he got caught up with Trevor Graham, Balco, banned for doping, he says the masseuse Chris Wetstein, who I actually saw back in the day, who was Marion Jones's masseuse, sabotaged him. 
he went away from the sport for four years, came back, and then his comeback was amazing. He's been at the top of the sport for another decade. So ignoring the whole drug thing, if you just look at the performances, it's it's just amazing his longevity. Now some people will say, holy shit, he was probably doping the whole time, or he never fessed up. USATF is praising him on his retirement. I mean, Gatlin and I had our run-ins. I, I, my only issue with Justin Gatlin is he never came clean. He never had the reckoning of actually what he, he said. I've addressed it. He hasn't addressed it. What really happened? Now, I, 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 you know, maybe Trevor Graham got him to take something he didn't want to take or didn't know what it was. I'd be open to that possibility that he, that he didn't purposely dope, but he's associating with like known legit doping Trevor Graham. If you're in that group after all had gone down, it, he, it all happened after the whole stuff had initially come out. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for Justin Gatlin. But if he wants to be this great citizen, I, I still think I still don't have all the answers I want to have from him. Well, yeah, Robert, so it's interesting. Robert made this post from the Let's Run account about Gatlin because USATF had this tweet from Gatlin at the Indiana Pacers game. And it said, happy retirement to one of the greatest. Thank you, Pacers, for helping us celebrate Justin Gatlin. And then Cole Dennehy, friend of Let's Run, he quoted that and said, what message does this send to young athletes? And Robert responded from the Let's Run account saying, we all make mistakes. How we react to those mistakes is what will define us. I generally, I agree with that. Of course, I've made mistakes through my life. I'm sure we all have. But I don't think Gatlin reacted to his mistakes well. And his definition is, you know, when you look at his career in summary, I think people are going to be like, well, okay, if you did dope, then you need to admit it. And you, you could, you, there was an opportunity there for him to say, I was a young athlete. I put my trust in the wrong person. I listened to them. I did this. I made a mistake. I screwed up. I don't want people to make that mistake. You know, I've paid for it. I served my time, but I hope that the next people can learn from what I've done. This is exactly what happened. He didn't do that. He, yeah, okay, he blamed the masseuse, but then when we asked him when he started to run fast again about what exactly happened, he was he was never clear. He wrote a letter to World Athletics apologizing. What's he apologizing for? If he if he was sabotaged. Why is he saying he's sorry? What's he sorry for? Again, like Weldon said, he was never totally clear about this. And then what does he do when he returns to the sport? He starts working with Dennis Mitchell, who was a doper in his own career, who used the ridiculous excuse of sex and beer with his, beer and sex with his wife for why he tested positive. And then D- Dennis Mitchell is caught undercover offering to procure testosterone for reporters. Dennis... Justin Gatlin cuts ties immediately, says, I'm not working with him anymore. That's it. And then quietly a year later, he's back working with Dennis Mitchell. So I think there are people would say, if you really were committed to clean sport and coming back and you know, using this positive as a way to improve the sport, there are steps you could have taken. And that's difficult. I'm not going to argue that it's easy to just step up and say, hey, I screwed up. Like, you know, that, that's a tough thing to do on the global stage to take responsibility for the, one of the biggest mistakes of your life. But if that's what you did, I think the way he reacted, I wouldn't say he reacted greatly to coming back the way he came back to the sport. He didn't at all. The way he came back, the way he reacted from coming back from the sport was was wrong and I would say almost disgraceful. The reason why I put that tweet out is someone like, I don't believe in just piling on people. Look, I've called for lifetime bans for drugs 
If you do EPO, if you do a drug, there's no way you can get into your system naturally. And we know we do it. Like if we caught somebody injecting themselves with steroids, to me, that should be a lifetime ban. But that's not the rules that we have. So I just put out that tweet, like, why would we do this? Because I was thinking, what would I tell my four-year-old if my four-year-old knew that he was a doper? I'd say, well, we all make mistakes. And, you know, he, he served his time and then he came back from it. He didn't let that, it's like, if you go to prison, your life's not over. When you come back, try to get a good job, whatever. He tried to do well in track and he did well after it. Now, we don't know that he was still cheating, et cetera. So I'm assuming that he wasn't clean. Now, I don't know if you, did you mention this already? Michael Johnson, I'm kind of surprised he put out a tweet. I don't think anyone can make me understand why USATF would do this. Very interesting to see another sprinter calling out USATF for, you know, yeah, I don't think he needs this praise. Like, it's just easier if we don't promote someone who did do one of the worst things you can do, in my mind, you can do uh, in track and field, which is intentionally cheat. Um, yeah, I, I don't understand how you can be part of Balco and say you didn't do it. I mean, maybe he got sabotaged and he got busted for something he wasn't doing, but he was cheating. I don't know. It's a little bit complicated. So I was just pointing out, like, the rationale for it because I just – I don't like the vitriol we have. Some people have for dopers. Dopers! It's like they should be executed. Okay. Are, are, isn't that what we're hearing in, in the real world is, okay, someone – stole from a store, someone held someone up, they do 10 years, then they're supposed to be now allowed a chance to come back into society and get a job. He came back into track and field and he was pretty damn good. So I'm going to assume that he was clean when he came back. And there you have it. But, but yeah, I know it's interesting that you say that, Robert, because that isn't the way it works in track and field though. Like doping is the cardinal sin of track and field. And People in society are willing to forget a lot of things, but in track and field, you break the. It's basically like eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. You do it once, that's it. You're done. You, you know, people they have no sympathy. There's no second chances. A lot of other things. If it's some sort of addictive substance, like Luvo Luvo Manyonga, when he was coming back from his drug addiction, I think a lot of people had support for him because he wasn't. It wasn't a performance enhancing drug. It was a serious street drug, but. For a lot of people, they just view dope. That is the one thing you're fundamentally affecting the outcome of performance by cheating. And for a lot of people, it's unforgivable. And I, you can debate whether that should be the standard, but that's mostly what it is in track and field. And I kind, I do kind of agree with them. If you were intentionally cheating, I don't have an issue with a lifetime ban if it's a serious substance like testosterone or EPO. Right, but there's not a lifetime ban, so. Justin Gatlin had a right to come back. You may disagree with it. I don't have any personal animosity really towards him. I wish he would come clean. But I think also there's someone else who needs to be criticized in this whole thing. It's Nike. Nike had an opportunity, right? They signed him to a contract. They could have said, you know, we're not going to sign you unless you come clean on what happened. He didn't do that. And then there was, I think a lot of people say that he was pushed towards, um, Dennis Mitchell at the encouragement of Nike. So they have a huge platform, right? And are they using it at all for clean sport? I would argue no. And I think unless people call them out, they may never do that. So a, a Nike employee, right? This is on the record, right? Llewellyn Stark was accused, I think, of beating up Chris Wetstein in the parking lot. Okay. We still don't know this whole story about what happened right yeah they settled out of court 
But I mean, that happened. But this is all related to that. So we're just all supposed to somehow kind of feel good about this. And Justin Gatlin's career, when the biggest thing that happens, we're still sort of searching for answers. Like, it seems like there's layers to this onion we're never going to see. Yeah, and the one other interesting part of it is, remember, Gatlin, when he tested positive in 2006, that was initially supposed to be an eight-year ban, which would have been a total death sentence on his career. But they ruled that he cooperated with them, and it got taken down from eight to four years, and that paved the way for him to come back. Now, for most people, four years is also a death sentence. But it is pretty interesting to think if he had been banned eight years, you know, this whole thing might have been different. We need to try to have him on the podcast because the more I think about it, too, I agree USATF shouldn't be honoring him. Like, what is this tied in Indianapolis? He's at a Pacers game getting a – like, USATF is going out of their way to get him promoted. This is not the person, type of person we want to be promoting. But have you all thought about most – and also there's a tied Alberto Salazar because this whole thing, supposedly why Salazar did, doped his own sons and ended up being banned from the sport in part. So – the, and why would you beat somebody up if they didn't sabotage you? So maybe people at Nike really think he, he was sabotaged. And then is the obvious example, look how tight Mike Siegel is to Nike. Maybe there's some Nike reason pressure to get this guy honored at the Pacers game. So it just shows you how uh, sick our sport is. But I just put out the tweet of like, what would I tell my four-year-old? And I told him like, hey, we make mistakes. You know, I, I don't think a four-year-old is going to really understand the, the back history of everything. No, I I think what you're 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 way overacting this thing. It's not some grand conspiracy. Here it is. It's probably whoever has the password to the USATF Twitter account is probably some 23 year old who isn't fully versed on the history of Justin Gatlin, his whole complicated saga, and they just say he's an Olympic champion, one of USA's greatest ever sprinters who retired, and now he's at some Pacers game. I'll just retweet that. That's probably all that went into it. No, no, no. USATF had to get this set up. Why else would the Pacers be honoring? USATF is based in Indianapolis. I assume they somehow... What is what is his connection to Indianapolis? Is it any connection to Indianapolis at all? I don't know, Robert. But I do... I mean, I, I've, look, I've heard people within track and field circles say they actually genuinely believe he was sabotaged. And if he was sabotaged and he had to serve a four-year ban, that's, re that's really unfortunate. Now, Trevor Graham shady character here but that's you know if that's actually what happened to gatlin that's really unfortunate but that's not the story he's maintained the entire time that story came out that was the defense lobbied at the time but he's had the chance to expand on it and to explain it further and he hasn't really done that yeah john if he was sabotaged like he, he should be if i was sabotaged for doping I would just still be to this day saying, I was sabotaged for doping. The four-year ban was the biggest injustice ever. So right. I, I can't give him that benefit of the doubt unless he goes there himself. The Kiprop approach. That's what Kiprop's been saying for four years, and now he can compete again. Kiprop, you know, you can say, oh, it was EPO. There's no way EPO could just show up in your system. But give him this credit. He has for four years maintained he's innocent. He's never said anything other than, I was framed. This is a, this is a tra travesty. That hasn't been the approach that Justin Gatlin's taken. Well, we should probably end this podcast. I think we've angered a lot of our listeners with doping apology, race talk, etc. 
do we even mention this meet in Levin that's happening on Thursday? I mean, it's kind of too late to do a Friday 15 or a Wednesday 15, but like 24 hours from now, we could have three or four world records. Like, have you guys seen these fields? It's totally insane. Jakob Ingebrigtsen is running the 1500 against Samuel Tefera, who is the current world record holder in that event. You've got Lamont Marcel Jacobs against Ronnie Baker in the 60, Grant Holloway in the 60 hurdles, Selmon Borrega getting at Wale, Mokatia in the 3000, Gudolf Sagai in the mile. I mean, it's a ridic- we know it's a fast track. We saw all the fast times there, including the women's 1500 world record last year. So it's going to be a tremendous track meet. But if you're listening to it at this point, the meet maybe has already even happened. We don't need to preview the meet, John, because half the people are going to be hearing this after the meet's taken place. Read the preview on Let's Run. And if something crazy happens, we got the Friday 15 for Supporters Club members. Join today, letsrun.com slash subscribe. Yeah, we could do that. Or even if it's truly crazy, like Ingebrigtsen World Record, we have our Pete Julian live podcast on Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. So... Maybe it starts out as a Pete Julian podcast. And if things are totally nuts in leaving, we extend it and we just talk about the action there. So we will have you covered for this meet. Don't worry about that. Just go to letsrun.com. We'll take care of it. And don't forget the letsrun.com pro coaches tour. Stop number four, Ben Rosario, Hoka and AZ Elite. Video link in the show notes. Video on Let's Run. I'll end now playing a clip how he's very bullish on Alex Masai, their new male edition, who is the brother of Moses Masai, who's a world championship medalist, and Lynette Masai, who's a world championship 10,000 meter champion. So Fobbs is out, Scott Smith is gone, Roy Linklater's gone, opportunity for other guys to step up, and young guys like Alex Masai. Here's that clip. He's a super, super big team guy, really supportive of, of, of his teammates. And uh, I'm going to tell you something, incredibly talented. He's already done a couple of workouts that I've never seen anyone on our team do before, uh, which is very exciting. But if you really put a gun to my head and, and ask me why did we recruit Alex, because I watched Alex's races in college and I investigated his training in college and his background And this is no offense to anyone else, but I said, this is the best kid in this 10,000 meter race right now. Remember, you can get electrolytes without the junk. Drinklmnt.com slash let's run for a free sample pack to be sent your way for $5 shipping. I'll refund your five bucks if you don't like it. Link in the show notes.